Hey guys, you're listening to In Traffic with Neil Rubenstein. I am your host, Neil Rubenstein. And today I'll be sitting in traffic, talking to Michelle Gonzalez of the band Spitboy and author of the book, The Spitboy Rule, Tales of a Chicana and a Female Punk Band. Hi, Michelle. Yes, hi, Neil, right? Yeah, hey. How are you? How's it going? Good, good. It's, I'm uh, I'm extremely excited for this, so thank you very much for uh, doing it. Of course, sure, no problem. I'm um, excited, too. <laughs> I'm just going to spend the whole 30 minutes just telling you how excited I am and thanking you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so... I just, I guess I want to talk about... Is it a blog or a magazine? I can't remember. Oh, uh, it's a podcast, so uh, this is, I'm going to post this unedited, probably. Right. That's right. Um, Cool. I just want to start, the book was great. Uh, It was, like, both nostalgic and informational, you know? Right. Um, Cool. What, uh, do you still consider yourself a feminist? Oh, Totally. Maybe okay. even more so now than ever. Okay. Um, I guess let's start with, uh, you want to talk, like, you just want to get, like, political right away or uh, warm up somehow? <laughs> let's ease into it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I loved, like, I loved the the tour stories in the book because mm-hmm. it reminded me, you know, of that era. Like, people... People younger than us don't yeah. will never understand what touring was like before cell phones and the internet. Right. Yeah, and you I know? hadn't really thought that. Too, I hadn't really thought that much about it until I started writing those pieces, and I started thinking like, wow, you know, we had to like stop at the side of the road and like make payphone calls, you know, with like coins or credit card. Um, and like a, 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 you had to have like, oh, what was that number? You would get like a little number to make calls, long distance calls. You had like a little number, and then it would charge you somehow. I don't even remember how it worked. But yeah. We had to do things like that. We actually had this illegal thing too that like faked out. <laughs> the, the dialer. <laughs> the dialer, right? We had one yeah. of those too. Yeah. So good. Um, but we would have to like you know make phone calls on the side of the road to like tell people we were on our way if we were running late. Or to get directions, because, like, not only does our cell phone, like, make phone calls, but it doubles and triples and quadruples and on and on. It's like many other functions, right, like the maps. And we really did use paper maps. We, like, had yeah. we had one of those ones that um, had multiple pages. It was like a map atlas, I guess is what it was called, the United States. And then you would open it up to, like, an area that you were in, like, this the cities, the city part of, like, San Antonio, Texas would have, like, uh, a map, just the city part, so you could like navigate that way. It was trippy, and then you had like the bigger ones for like the interstates. My dad was an AARP at the time. He was much older than uh, mm-hmm. he was older than most dads. He had me very late, and uh, so you could send them a route, and they would send you back a book <laughs> of maps 
of the of where you're going, basically. But I think we went to AAA and like said we're you know yeah got like AAA maps of all the states we went to. <laughs> and one point. do you remember like you'd be like uh, you'd be like searching for a place that you hadn't been to before, and you would call the promoter's number, and like the mom would be on the phone. <laughs> totally. And, like, oh, and you're like, hi, hi, hi Josh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's like, oh, I'm talking to my sister long distance. You're going to have to call back in an hour. <laughs> That's hysterical. Oh, the, yeah, those are the days. Yeah, touring was really different then. I mean, and one of the one of the things that's probably really different is like, well, we read a lot, which was fun, and we played Scrabble a lot, which was really fun. Um, and we just talked a lot. We talked about the night, the show the night before. We talked about, like, a song. We talked about how we wanted to talk about a song. So we'd have, like, lots of really good conversation. We would sleep, too. We'd take turns sleeping and driving. But now I now I think you would pass the time mostly on your phone. You'd have to be, like, charging it all the time. But you would pass the time on the phone, and hopefully people are still having good conversations in the van on tour, even even with the phones. But I don't yeah. know. Yeah, uh, I hope, I hope, you know, I hope it's not just all Netflix and Hulu on your phone. Exactly. But, you know, that some of that would have been nice some of the time, I have to admit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. To, like, escape, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, i got to listen to this guy talk about this again. We heard the story. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and then you also, two things that struck me uh, huge was the sneaking across Canada. Yeah. Because we had, like, we had the, you know, same, everyone at that time had the same issues. And you have, like, the fake recording contract or, you know, you had to, like, what you said you, like, layered up in all the merch. You were just wearing all your merch. <laughs> and, like, it's just, it was just so vivid. Yeah. That was a really, I, that was the funniest thing we've, one of the funniest things we did. And. You know, we did a lot of clever stuff, and that was that kind of was like at the top of the list of like clever ways to approach things. Sorry, I have dogs, and um, that definitely tops the list, which is probably why it got a story. But um, I hadn't heard the fake. I guess I sort of vaguely remember the fake recording contract. I really, I really, um, the one of the things that was really cool that I remember about those times is the way the bands would share the stories or their experiences, or you would talk, you would, you would like talk to other bands after they came back from a tour, if you were about to go on tour, and you would find out like, how did you, how did you, what route did you take to get to this city, or what was the drive like between this stretch and this stretch, or how did you get into Canada, like what were the strategies that you used to like, you know, not go in as a band and set off that alarm and, and not be able to cross in um, to the country without a work permit. But we were also really naive. I mean, this was before 9-11, and I say that in the story, you know, and that, that makes a big difference. But yeah, we, definitely. So 9-11 made us less naive, but 9-11 also tightened the border security. So, um, but, you know, it's true, like what I say in the story about how we were crossing illegally to work, in, similarly to the way people who cross in the United States to work, um, immigrants in particular, and um, we were so naive. We just thought, like, oh, we're Americans. We're not doing anything wrong. It's not a big deal, you know. So in a way, we were kind of stupid and naive. But, um, um, and, you know, that's sort of this, the, 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 the case with being young, right? You do a lot of things that you wouldn't do because you didn't really know the consequences. You didn't really quite grasp the, the gravity yeah. of the consequences or, or just kind of 
you know, understand it a different way. Um, so maybe it's good that we didn't know. But um, I, Yeah, I definitely think it helps. Like, the naivety definitely helps. <laughs> but on the, other, on the other hand, like, it is, I do think that we had a certain bravado about being Americans and feeling like we had, we really didn't have anything to hide. Like, there was a certain amount of privilege that I think that we didn't think about. Um, because we were from America, and we thought, well, we're not smuggling, like, people or non-native plants or anything like that. It's just, you know, a ban. It's not, like, a big deal. Um, and so, I don't know. I think that, in a way, like, we also, like, didn't totally understand, like, all the issues around border crossings, I think, the way I do or many people do now. Um, but um, that's just because we were young. Yeah, I really do think that that helped because we narrowly escaped so many dangerous situations just by being dumb and leaving them or, you know, entering them. You know what I mean? Like you in the book you talk about Phyllis from Tourette's being on tour with you at 16. And like, I know. I can't imagine five young women, you know, from 16 well, to 20-something. We were adults. That's the thing. Like, we were adults, and I don't even know why, how we thought that was a good idea. How that was a good idea. I mean, it's not a good idea. I would never in a million years <laughs> let my son go on tour with a band, punk band or otherwise, without some adult supervision. But we were adults. And, you know, Phyllis, Phyllis was raised, I think, by a single mom, and her mom, I think, had a sense that what she was doing in the punk scene was actually not so unsafe and not that dangerous. And um, I think that in some ways she trusted us. Now, Dominique talked to me after I wrote that piece and showed it to her. Dominique, our bass player then, she actually said to me, oh, my God. And, and I, I, I tried to get a little bit of into the story after I wrote the piece the first time. She said, oh, my God, I was so stressed out on that tour because I had promised Phyllis's mother that nothing would happen to her. <laughs> And then when we got on tour, I realized, oh, my God, what? I, that's just too much of a responsibility. Why did I do that? So she was always nervous that Phyllis was going to get into some kind of trouble. And Phyllis, frankly, was a wild young woman. And so, like I say in the piece, it wasn't for a lack of trying. I mean, she was partying really hard. She was, <laughs> she had a blast. She was a great roadie. But um, she definitely pushed the limits of what Dominique felt was um, safe for her um, to a and, and I, poor Dominique, you know, I think she, she like, probably got a lot of gray hairs uh, by the time we got back. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah, it's, like, I can't imagine what, I, I can't, I, yeah, just so dangerous, you know what I mean? Like, like uh, the middle of America is a scary place. It's a scary place for a biracial young woman in a band, which is a bunch of other women, you know, we just thought, hey, why not, you know? <laughs> um, I mean, I didn't really think that much of it, honestly. I didn't I didn't even think, like, oh, this is safe. I mean, and, then, and that's what's sort of interesting about, the, I mean, I think what, the reason why I didn't really consider it unsafe or think much about it is because, even though I was a preschool teacher at the time, because in the scene, in the Bay Area at that time, a lot of people were friends across age groups. So we were in our yeah. middle 20s at that point, and Phyllis was, in her six, Phyllis was 16. And that didn't, you know, we knew that there was a big age gap. She was in high school, and we were already working adults. But at the same time, because we were all part of the same scene, 
it wasn't unusual for a bunch of different people to be friends at different ages. And frankly, now nowadays, I love having friends all different ages. Um, I find that very inspiring. And you don't want to have friends all your own age because then, you're, you know, if, they, if your friends are dying before you, you're going to be really sad and lonely if all your friends are the same age as you. And it's good to yeah. have a few friends that are younger so they can be around for a little longer. Um, but, you know, in the scene at that time, it wasn't, you know, people – hung out in different age groups and that that was really um fun and and punk is a is a youth culture scene so yeah. um there were a lot of young people around and if their parents didn't mind or approved or if they happened to be unsupervised young people then um you know they just hung out with everyone even while everyone was partying and maybe they partied maybe they didn't but um i think the older people did tend to make sure that the young people were were safe to a certain extent yeah, you know, like while you're saying it, I'm remembering, like, yeah, I was in my mid 20s and I was in a band with a 17 year old and we talked his father into coming on tour. Like, letting him go on tour. <laughs> so, like, how could you do that? It's so dangerous. And I'm like, oh, we we did that. Yep, I remember. I remember now. <laughs> and I remember him disappearing in the scariest part of Georgia with our roadie to shoot fireworks. Oh, my God. So, like, just, just, like, just at a gas station, walk away. Like, not, I'll be right back, not, here's where I'm going, no cell phone, walk away. <laughs> no, it, does. Uh, it does seem crazy now. Yeah, uh, yeah. We may, I, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but we made some bad choices. <laughs> uh, we, were pretty, we were pretty tame as far as bands were concerned. We rarely, we did not drink and drive ever. We almost never drank before shows. If we drank after, it would be... You know, one or two drinks. You know, very tame. We played mostly um, all ages shows where the alcohol wasn't allowed anyway. Yeah. So um, that tended to keep things safer, anyways. And that was safer for us because women playing hardcore, they're always some um, unpredictable people in that kind of crowd. Like, yeah. When there's alcohol, especially when there's a place that allows alcohol, like a house party, and no security, that was always a kind of the kind of show that Sip Boy really didn't like to play because it, it was just, um, always a little dangerous for us being women. Um, and we didn't want to have men to have to like defend us, you know, come to our our rescue. That always was an uncomfortable situation for us too. So um, we ha- always were worried about those kinds of shows. I mean, and we also we also feared date rape, so we weren't like going to be out partying in some strange town because um, if someone did rape us, it wouldn't be our fault. But we also were so hyper aware of that being a reality for us when it wasn't a reality for male hardcore bands, for the most part. That we yeah. really, we were really we um, were really extra careful. Like a, the kind of partying that a lot of other punk bands did and wild things that they did, we didn't we didn't tend to do. Do you guys keep, like, mace on you or, or like, a switchblade in the car or something? I think Adrian off and on had mace. Um, and many of us had taken, like, self-defense at different times. Not that, you know, you never know if that's going to work, but in the, in the yeah. moment. But um, we just always were really, I mean, one of the main ways we were safe was by being aware of our surroundings. And when you're wasted... You can't be aware of your surroundings. Yeah. So you talk about Riot Girl, like right off the bat, you get into it, mm-hmm. and yeah. how 
you guys weren't a part of that scene. And I, and I, I recall that, and I recall the reasons that you brought up. I, re, I recall those reasons. And mm-hmm. I just think it's interesting how there can be so many sides to an issue where it's clear what side you should be on, but the side that you should be on is divided so many ways. Am I, um, maybe I'm not phrasing this correctly. Like, clearly uh, there shouldn't be sexism. We should look past our unconscious biases and right. do the best we can. But then within that sensibility, there's the riot girl movement where they're, you know, Panty men being up front at the shows, and we don't want your money, and we don't want your help. And then there's uh, you guys, where it was like, well, you guys can be a part of this, but we, we're not relying on you. We're we want it right. equal for everyone, you know. We're like, I find, uh, I'm sorry, I'm over talking this. I find that like there's a faction of feminism where I can't even be an ally. Mm-hmm. Well. And there are a lot of different ways to be a feminist, and um, now we know that men can be feminists too, which is great. Um, for me, for us, you know, Riot Girl, um, we knew pretty quickly right away that we didn't want to be part of Riot Girl. Mainly, girls. Mainly, I mean, the main first and foremost reason because we didn't want to be called girls. Um, you know, I chose to put that piece first in the book on purpose. I mean, it, there's a prologue, and then there's that piece. Yeah. And I and I I chose that piece on purpose because I really wanted to open up right away. Like, we're a hardcore punk band, but we're not, and from the '90s, but we're not a riot girl band. Mainly because, you know, Carrie Brownstein came out with her book, and a lot of women in music have been putting out memoirs recently. It's totally a thing. And um, when women start doing that, of course, all these women either are associated with Riot Girl or women, people assume they are or ask them if they are. And that question always came up for Spitboy, and I knew it would come up with the book. So the the most obvious thing to do is just to start off right away by saying we're not a Riot Girl, but just to kind of put us, position, position us that way right away. Um, it also is interesting. It also sets up, I mean, you know, when you're when you write, um, conflict is central to stories, right? <laughs> so... One of the ways to introduce conflict into the narrative of that book, you know, they're all separate pieces, but they fit together sort of. One of the ways to introduce conflict is to start with that piece as well. So it's also kind of a uh, a literary device in a way. Um, putting that piece where it is is sort of a was sort of a literary de- device decision. Um, but we, you know, talked a lot at length about why we didn't want to be a Riot girl band. And, and it was a, it's a decision that we're still, or I in particular, I'm still glad that that we made. Though, um, you know, we didn't go about it the best way, and we did, you know, ruffle a lot of feathers, and um, you know, we weren't maybe as mature about it as we could have been. But um, it was just frustrating to get lumped into a group um, whose strategies we didn't we didn't agree with. And the men in the back thing was probably. Really, in reality, the the least of the things that bothered us, um, for us, the the approach of kind of a very sexy performance, sex as performance or sexuality as performance, um, that a lot of the bands, mainly Bikini Kill, 
um, used in their performances was uncomfortable, was something that we were not comfortable with at all, something that we did not want to do. So um, that was the other reason why we separated ourselves from the Riot Girl movement. Um, and, yeah, so I don't know if you have another question about it or if that kind of satisfies your <laughs> <the> curiosity. <laughs> well, that, that's satisfying. Did, did, you, did you get a lot of heat from that scene, like, or was it, uh, was there just, like, there was a lot of tension. There was a lot of tension. Anytime a Riot Girl band would play in at Gilman, um, if we, you know, we'd want to go because we we liked seeing women play music. I like female music. It doesn't have to be hardcore. So I would always go and see like Heavens to Betsy when they came, or any other Riot Girl bands that came to the Bay Area. Um, but I always felt like ugh, I had to kind of like lay low because if they knew that I was drummer or spit boy and after if they heard, heard what I said, and you never knew back then without the internet who had heard what, yeah. who knew what, if anyone would recognize me or not, um, but I always kind of felt like I had to like lay low. And then we did play with Bikini Kill in L.A., and um, that was weird. There was a lot, and we were all backstage at one point, and it, you could feel the tension in the room for sure. Um, and that was um, after the the D.C. event. And, um, you know, they were all there when uh, many of the members of Bikini Kill were there when I said we're not a riot girl in front of them. And um, people wrote about it in zines and other riot girls would come down from Olympia from the Bay Area. And, like, one riot girl accused us of cultural appropriation. So it just kind of felt like the the rivalry kind of just went on and on um, for a while. And I definitely took most of the heat, which was fine. I was, you know, I'm the one who said it. I'm the one who said it as bluntly as I did, even though I didn't have to be that quite that blunt. Um, I didn't have as much diplomacy back then as I do now. Um, and so I took most of the heat, and, um, you know, I think that in the end, a couple of the other band members did become friends with kind of like Riot Girl and women who were associated with Riot Girl, which was good. I mean, we didn't, we weren't trying to create a rift. We weren't trying to create any kind of um, rivalry at all. That was not our aim. It was not our aim at all. We just wanted to make a distinction and we did it a little too brusquely so i uh i also think it's interesting and i probably take i probably took the wrong thing out of this but kind of interesting that you talk about like i guess the flaw in the armor a little bit where uh to a lot of us in that world we looked at Spitboy and, and, and I mean, even ev- evolution as a whole, like, not that you were at evolution, but like just throwing an umbrella on a scene. Um, right. Uh, that you guys were like this politically charged movement and like politically correct, but like, oh, oh, oh like aggressively politically correct. And right. then to read in the, in the book how like, you guys still, there were still struggles with race issue and class issues. Uh, like, it was surprising. It, yeah, well, it was like a relief. Probably the wrong thing I'm supposed to take out of that, but it's like, it was just like, Oh, no, but okay. honest. I think that's a really cool, honest reaction that you're, that you're admitting to. I think that's really cool because yeah, like, Punk in general, like the East Bay punk scene, kind of had this politically correct way to it, you know. 
um, the, the the Gilman Street scene had that somewhat to a certain extent, and and to know that Stip Boy was struggling, you know, even though like we shouldn't be comforted by that, like it might be comforting <laughs> to some people who were struggling themselves with how to you know navigate the complicated intersections of race and ethnicity and class and all of those you know all of those kind of really com- complicated identity politics kind of stuff um i can see how that might translate to like oh wow i wasn't the only one or like Savoy was struggling that way too and it's not something that the band talked about it's something that only i have talked about you know in this um, from in, from my perspective, I'm um, writing the book, and it was one of the things that I wanted to address um, when I started writing the book. Um, I wanted it to be about Spitboy, but I wanted it to be about my perspective as the only person of color in the band. And um, I struggled as much as the rest of the band did um, because I didn't know how to talk about my own ethnicity very well. Um, I didn't have the words. I didn't have the language. And while it seemed like the Bay Area kind of had, like, this whole, like, way and this politically correct thing going on, it, it really, you know, wasn't really that far advanced than the rest of the nation um, in the 90s who, you know, when in the 90s when people were really trying to, like, just be colorblind and not really see race or class. I mean, we were coming along a little bit with the gender stuff and, and the queer stuff, but um, we, we were a little behind in the, in the, I think, in the, like, kind of seeing people of color and, like, um, understanding like the different experiences and what that what that might be like. Um, Spitboy, you know, like a lot of people in the punk scene, was mainly upper middle class white folks, except for me, and um, I had a difficult time. At first, I just wanted to fit in, you know, to the scene in general, so I didn't really talk about those things or reveal those things. And I was also, there was also a lot of shame, you know. There was a lot of shame about growing up on welfare and being a person of color who grew up in a small town. It was kind of a hick town. And, I, you know, I got a lot of bullying. I was bullied a lot when I grew up. And so when I came to the Bay Area, I just kind of wanted to forget any of that ever happened to me. So just, like, just be a punk rocker and not anything else. And so part of what happened as Boy is partially a, a symptom of me wanting to forget and put it behind me, and not not wanting to pass, but just not wanting to have to deal with it, you know? And then part of it was kind of a blind spot um, that the band had, the rest of the band had, because of their own experiences and their own class privilege and stuff. And I don't fault anybody in the band for any of that unnecessarily, though there is a tremendous amount, as you point out, there is a tremendous amount of irony in the fact that here we have this scene, this subculture that is so, like, considers itself so radical and so progressive that can't quite get a handle on class and race issues in the 90s. You know, it is ironic. Yeah, it seemed like that was your biggest struggle, too, like, as a reader. Like, uh, the the class issue was the the real sticking point for you, like, being embarrassed of, like, your your hometown and being embarrassed of your grandmother's house and and those kind of things it it really struck me more as a ra- a classic than a race thing yeah well i think that you know the race thing kind of gave me like a little bit of a of an edge you know like a, a rough edge that that is like kind of acceptable in punk but the class stuff even though we like kind of made fun of people who lived, came from like walnut creek which is sort of like a wealthy area in the bay area 
back then. Um, you could make fun of somebody who came from a wealthy area, but you just didn't really say anything if you weren't, if you didn't have money or if you grew up on welfare. Like, that was still really shameful. And a lot of that probably came from the fact that, you know, you know, Reagan really did a number <laughs> on, you know, in the media that, you know, you know, with, with all the, like, the, the shaming of welfare moms and, you know, just kind of painting women on single mothers on welfare as just like scum of the earth who just like sponge off the system and are lazy. Um, and so, you know, a lot of us who grew up that way, grew up poor, grew up on welfare, grew up in poverty, um, you know, it was, just, it was just, it's just in the 80s. It just felt like really shameful and you just kind of wanted to like not, you know, acknowledge that because it just felt so horrible. Um, if you could just be like a shabby punk rocker and not have to like admit that you were also on welfare when you grew up. Though I have to say, being punk rock, because you can be shabby, is pretty good when you're on welfare. Those two things go hand in hand. You know, you might want to hide one of them, but but at the same time, like you know, yeah, I, I shop at thrift stores because it's cool. Well, it's also convenient when you don't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> it, did you guys have? You don't bring it up in the book at all. But I, I remember for for me, for us, there was, like, a little resentment even from, like, like uh, when I first started touring with my punk band, my hardcore band, we, like, I, I, was, a, not, I was an adult. I was a young 20, mm-hmm. so, like, my money was my own. And then right. members of my band were, like, still in college, so they, you know, could fall back on mom and dad. Right. And it was, like, it, was there, like, a resentment or was it difficult or, you know, that, like, you know, you're eating, you know, not cooked ramen and, you know, someone else is like, oh, I can afford to go grab Taco Bell every day. Yeah, I don't, we didn't really have those kind of resentments so much in the band. I mean, we were all working. It kind of felt in that way, in terms of the band in those days, that felt equal. It was our backgrounds where we came from that was the sticking point, but in the moment, like, when we were all in bands, like, Karen was making pretty decent money working for More Damn Records because they, they, they actually paid pretty well, their employees pretty well, which was nice, and we were proud of her. We were actually really happy for her. But um, she was making her own money, you know, and not getting money from her mom and dad. So it wasn't – we didn't really have anything like that. You know, Adrian worked – you know, for a long time she worked at Blondie's Pizza, and I was a preschool teacher – you know, I had kind of like a job that had a little bit of like um, prestige to it. Um, you know, it was just in service and stuff, but um, I didn't make a lot of money. So we didn't we didn't really because we were all like on our own and and you know supporting ourselves. We didn't really have those kind of resentments. It was more it was more like when we would go to like for example we we spent time with Karen's family in the Midwest and um, it became very clear to me then like why Karen sort of seemed to have a blind spot. Um, about class and and even maybe race in some ways because I saw the way she grew up and I, mean, I didn't resent that or anything like that. It just made things a little more clear to me. Like, oh, yeah, this family, um, you know, probably earned their privilege, but they have privilege now and they, um, you know, it's very removed from the way I grew up. You know, like my family doesn't go on like vacations or sail or have wine with dinner. I mean, I have wine with dinner now. I mean, I definitely have a much more privileged <laughs> life than I than I used to. In fact, I'm drinking a glass of wine right now, just, you know, for the on the run. 
you also you bring up in the book you tell the story and uh you don't really get into it too much but there's this sense where uh like you said before where we try to be colorblind as a scene uh and i mean you know we should be kind of but then there's a story you tell where it's almost like we shouldn't we shouldn't really be colorblind like we shouldn't we shouldn't form decisions based on it, but we need to recognize it. We need to recognize that, like, these group of black kids aren't, uh, don't have the same experiences that I have. You right. know, like, And that's why. I mean, colorblindness, it was like this fad thing that people was do- were doing because it made them feel all good. Like, I don't see race. You know, I just see people. You're like, um... Okay, great. That's nice when your experience is represented in the world, like in just about every single thing, like every movie, every magazine, every book. But when your experience isn't represented and you just don't see anybody and any differences, that's like really hard for people of color because, like you said, you don't recognize, you don't get to see or recognize or acknowledge that someone else's experience might be different than yours. It might not be as gushy and nice as yours was. It might not be as privileged as yours was. It might not have been as fun. It might not have been as memorable. Um, and, um, you know, yeah, you get to be this angry punk rocker, you know, and angry at the world and politics and all that, but you didn't you didn't actually, like, ever have anyone discriminate against you because, you know, of, of your race or because you're a person right. of color, because of your ethnicity. And that's, like, that's, like, that's really some shit, you know. Um <laughs> Um, and so colorblindness makes people feel invisible. I mean, that's that's the real problem with it. It, makes, it made me feel invisible. And I maybe a little bit at first wanted to be invisible in that sense. But then after a very short time of being in the Barry, I realized, no, I can't. It was frustrating for me to just be like, the drummer of Spitboy, like I could only be that, and I, I realized, gosh, my identity is so much more than that, and people don't see it. And then I realized people don't see it because I am like participating in my own invisibilization, you know. Right. And, that, and that made me really sad. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't know. But it's part of. I mean, it's part of the narrative you told because you, you were like. You did want to be invisible. Like, you didn't want people to know where you were from. You know, you didn't, like, you say that, like, immediately after introducing the band to your grandmother, like, you regretted that decision. You didn't, you didn't want to let these people into your world. Well, I regretted so- it because, well, and I regretted that decision because I saw them see me in a way they never saw me before. And it was a judgy way. It was, like, kind of judgmental. It was like, oh, she's one of those people. Like, they hadn't really seen me as my Mexican self before. When they walked into my house and saw my fam- my, where my grandma lived and saw my grandma's house and saw my family photos, our family photos, it made them, I think it made them see me. I think it helped them see me or caused them to see me in a way that they hadn't quite saw me before. And they they were sort of stunned into this weird silence, and it made me feel really uncomfortable. And 
if they had had a different reaction, I wouldn't have felt that way. If they had just seen my grandma the way I see her and loved her because she's amazing, the way I love her, um, if they had just been like, oh, wow, this is a cool new experience for us that we've never had before, we're in East L.A., in the Mexican part of L.A., um, if they had had that reaction, I wouldn't have regretted it. Maybe that's sort of like that the, That colorblindness is bad right there. That's a good example because, like, if they had recognized that even though we're no different because you're a Chicana, but you are, you're Mexican. Like, let's put that in our memory bank. Let's, you know, right. so when we see, when we meet your grandmother, we're not blown away. Like, what? <laughs> right. right, like totally stunned and bewildered. Like, wait a minute, this doesn't fit my image of who you're, this person is. Your last name is Spitboy also. How can you be, how can right. you be brown? It's impossible. Exactly. I mean, but that was sort of like what punk did back then, like, I mean, you probably remember this. Punk, like, you didn't really come, you were just a punk. You didn't come from anywhere. You didn't have a history. You didn't really talk about, it wasn't cool, really, to have a family or talk about a family. You were just, like, a punk kid. You, like, were into bands. You were into music. It was punk rock 24-7. And to, like, talk about your family or to have a family or to be from somewhere was just, like, quaint and boring. You know, so part of it was part of the kind of, like, expectations of punk, too, that, that caused this, I think. Um, that, combined with the colorblindness, really exacerbated all of that. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's like I say, blame punk rock, blame America, blame the scene, blame America. Um, it could be It could be those things individually. It could be all of them all together, and it probably was all of them all together. I had a different experience. Uh, one, uh, I'm a white guy, so right away. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, our, I'm from a suburban scene. It's Long Island hardcore. So, uh-huh. I, I mean, 95% white, if not, if not wow. 99% white. Mm-hmm. And almost everyone was from a middle class or better. Family. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, like, we would go to the city and we would see, like, squatter kids or whatever. And, like, even 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 then we were like, ah, oh, dude, that's so-and-so. Like, he could, like, take a shower and go to home to his mom and apologize and not have to live <laughs> on the streets anymore. You know? Right. So, like, it was, it, it was a different thing for us. Like, I don't think... There was a there was a politically charged element to our community, but we weren't as politically aggressive as a lot of the other scenes that would like tour through and and, and come through. And you right. know, we'd go see we'd go see bands at ABC Rio, but we we wouldn't have the same. We wouldn't be from the same place. We were right. from a different. We, Long Island Hardcore is its own different mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you talk, uh, sorry, about, uh, you talk about, like, punk rock and punk rock credit so much. Like, everything was like, oh, well, it was, you know, it wasn't cool. If it, stopped, it That wasn't punk rock, but that was punk rock. And I, right. I just, it's so funny to, like, it's funny to hear an adult speak like that. You know what I mean? Like, to recall, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, 
like, oh yeah, like everything was about we we called it scene points, like jokingly, scene points. like everything was, was about scene points. We called it punk points, yeah. Yeah, it was all like, oh, you can't do, you can't do that. Oh, but you were in a band with so and so, like. You could do whatever you want, <laughs> you know? Like, oh, my God, that's so funny. I know. Well, that's the funny thing about punk. It's like it's it acts so, like, rebellious. But there are, like, so many fucking rules. Like, there are oh. so many rules to be a punk rocker. It's sort of, like, oppressive, you know, after a while. <laughs> yeah, like, I feel like I got bullied uh, mentally in hardcore way more than oh, I got bullied too. physically oh, in high school. Me too, and two things have come up for me since I published this book. So as a published author, you are asked to do um, readings, and you are asked to sign books. And I've had two weird reactions that I did not expect that hardly any of my writer friends feel. (laughs) Totally, I feel so weird signing books. Yeah, I that's think in my head, all. like, what are you, a rock star? What are you, a rock star? You're signing your autograph now? That You're not a rock star. Like, whenever I sit down to sign books, I feel so embarrassed. Yeah. And I totally know it's from that punk rock bullying. And then the other one is I'm worried about being overexposed by playing, by, instead of, because, like, I don't want to read too much. Like, I was worrying, but maybe I'm reading too much. I don't want to be overexposed. And this is totally from a spipway experience because, when we played in the Bay Area, we noticed that our friends um, or people on the scene just kind of, like, stopped coming to see us. People, if Econochrist played, people would go every single time. People would see Econochrist every show, but not Fit Boy. Not, cause, and, and part of it is because, like, we had this kind of aggressive message. It was threatening to, to the people who kind of essentially owned the scene, male, white, right? Mm-hmm. Um and so that kind of that sort of scarred me. Like you know, I just felt like, oh, you know, I could tell people are not going to come and see us because they think we're playing too much. I mean, people even said that sometimes, like, oh yeah, well, you guys have played a lot lately, so you know, whatever, we don't want to see you. Um, and so I real I I feel you with the being scarred by punk in some ways. <laughs> you know, you don't you don't if you're if you're a punk rocker, you don't you can't get too big for your britches. You know, people are going to like try to bring you down a peg or two. Yeah, and it's so weird because, like, the, like, uh, the kings and queens of the scene, you know, like, they they dictated so much that it was, like, yeah. like looking back on it, it's like, oh, my God. A lot of punk rock policing. A lot yeah. of punk rock policing. Yeah. We're like, all oh, you can't have that opinion. But there's so much policing. Mm-mm. Uh, Isn't that funny? Oh, the irony. Oh, the irony. Uh, Michelle, thank you so much for doing this. I, uh, you have no idea. This is, this is awesome. Uh, and I hope, I don't, I don't know, I mean, whatever, I have like 40 people who listen, but hopefully three of them hey, get a Fit Boy record after this. Yeah. I'll post it on my Facebook page. I have a Facebook page for the um, book. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, so if you just um, go on Facebook and put in, um, the Fit Boy Rule, Tales of a Chicana and a Female, or Tales of a Female Punk Band. Um, it doesn't have Chicana on the Facebook page, even though it should. But um, you could find me there. There you go, and hiding I will it again. Post, I know, and I will post it there as well. Awesome. I have Thank you. Um, quite a few uh, followers. So, yeah, people will listen. Thank you. Thank, again, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, anyone listening, please check out Spit Boy and get this book, The Spit Boy Rules. It's, it's, uh, it's rules. Thank <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. you. Thanks again, Michelle. I'll hopefully ask you soon. Okay, bye. 
You're a jerk, Neil.